Geyer's Nation, we're back with our second show of the week. We've got more breaking news. Of course, the big announcement coming out of South Bend after Brian Kelly departs for LSU. We now have our newest head coach of the Fighting Irish program. Marcus Freeman has been promoted from defensive coordinator. Tom Reese is continuing in his same role as offensive coordinator. And the show goes on. Most importantly, uh, we are still in a college football playoff hunt going into this weekend. That's something we were hoping to talk about in our last show before the Brian Kelly news broke. So we've got a two-part show, a quick one for you. We're going to dissect everything we can about our thoughts on the Marcus Freeman hire, what it means for the program, both near-term and long-term. And then we're going to get back to the rest of this season. We're going to preview Notre Dame's bowl tie-ins and affiliations, where we're at in the college football playoff, and where this Irish team might wind up after the conference championship games this weekend. Mike, you want to kick us off on the Freeman hire? Definitely. So exciting times, Notre Dame. It's been a whirlwind the last couple days. Uh, just, just up and down, like a roller coaster of emotions. But it seems like the bleeding has finally stopped. Notre Dame moved very quickly, uh, made some big moves today. As we mentioned, Freeman is expected to be named. It's not officially, the university hasn't said it yet, but there's some big name journalists who are reporting it that, uh, he will be named the head coach. Tommy Reese named the offensive coordinator. Uh, Bayless, the, the strength coach, he's, he said he was staying. And then, uh, McNulty, the tight end coach is, is staying as well. So, uh, I think, like I said, we can take a deep breath. Sit back and we can go back on the internet and start laughing at Oklahoma again. Uh, we're, we're in a position where we can, uh, we can chill a little bit and, uh, you know, thank God that the, uh, the administration did a good job here. But anyways, most importantly, moving to Marcus Freeman, let's just give like one a thing little- before Freeman, just on the, on the breaking news getting to this point. I thought one of the most interesting parts was the first to report it was Mick Asaf, a former walk on, uh, Ian Book's roommate. He, he started a, a video gaming company with, with college athletes. He's not a reporter. Uh, usually this stuff is Pete Sampson or Bruce Feldman or, you know, Eric Hansen, someone following the program or, you know, Adam Schefter, right? Like usually this yeah. is the ESPN and the Athletic and Fox. No, is a former walk-on who's in his 20s, doesn't do this for a day job. His younger brother's on the team. He's been staying close to the program. We had his younger brother, Sam, on this show. I actually know Sam and Mick uh, personally. They both interned for the company I work for, so I – I know Sam and Mick really well. I thought that was a really cool part that Mick right now is going viral on, on the internet and he's getting shout outs from Fox and ESPN and Athletic as the quote unquote first to report it. So congratulations, Mick. R- really cool, um, underlying piece here for, for all of us that, that follow this stuff closely and have been refreshing our Twitter updates virtually every five seconds here for the last two or three days. Definitely. No, it's big, big J journalists who are, who are giving him credit. Bruce Feldman from The Athletic. That's, that's a legit guy. He was, he shouted out, uh, Mick Asaf in there. So really big moment for him. Um, yeah, really happy to see it. Uh, and I guess maybe one other thing I'd like to point out is when Tommy Reese, uh, he had a speech where he said he was, he was coming back, but then on Twitter, he actually posted the Wolf of Wall Street gif of, uh, I'm not leaving. So kind of taking, taking the torch from, uh, from uh, Kurt Heinisch there a little bit. Um, one of my favorite movies, just a hilarious scene. So anytime you find a use to use that clip, I'm all for it. And I think Tommy used it perfectly there. Now, moving on to Freeman. I think a lot of Notre Dame fans are going to be pretty aware of who he is, but I think it's worth diving into uh, just a little bit of his bio. So he is, he's really young. Uh, he's only 35 years old. Um, a lot younger that you would, than what you would find with a lot of head coaches. Uh, in terms of where he came from, he played at Ohio State. This guy was a big-time recruit back in the day. The guy could play. He was the number one 30, 31 recruit in the class of 2004. I actually saw on Twitter people were saying that he is perhaps the first big-name college football coach who has a rival's recruiting profile. 
Um, so I thought that was kind of a fun, wow. fun, fun little tidbit right there. But class of 2004, and then, and then he, uh, and then he showed up and, and played really well once he was, uh, on Ohio State. Second team, all Big Ten team twice. Uh, late round pick from the Bears. He didn't really play in the NFL much and re- retired after a couple years, uh, on practice squads, but that was due to an enlarged heart condition. So definitely one of those scenarios where, uh, Freeman knows the value of an education. He understands <coughs> that even if you're a really good football player, it doesn't always work out, unfortunately. You have these things that kind of pop up. So um, I think he's uh, – just because of that, he can he can really push the importance of um, kind of being well-rounded and not just focusing on, entirely on football, as important as football is for these players. And in terms of his family, I think he, he fits the profile of what Notre Dame wants in their coach. It seems like he has the values. Six kids at age 35, and he's someone who seems to constantly – Doing God's be, work. Definitely, definitely. He's posting <laughs> pictures of his family a lot. Uh, from what you hear around the program, he's someone who's a big family guy, talks about his family, uh, very involved. Um, so just, again, good match for the university there. Um, in terms of his coaching background, previously a linebacker position coach at Purdue. He actually re- tried recruiting Drew Tranquil back in the day, um, funny enough. Tranquil uh, had – it seemed like he connected with him pretty well, ultimately chose Notre Dame. Um, but Tranquil put out a tweet recently uh, showing that uh, Freeman reached out to him actually once he took the defensive coordinator position at Notre Dame, and Tranquil only had good things to say about him. So consistent theme, it seems like this guy just makes a really good impression everywhere that he goes, which you love to hear. Um, And then moving on, then he was – so at Purdue, he actually was the defensive coordinator. And then after that, he was hired as the defensive coordinator at Cincinnati under Luke Fickle. Um, And as we've talked about before, he led some top 10 defenses there, some really ferocious defenses. And then after that, uh, he came over to Notre Dame and – uh, he, he just finished his first regular season here and, uh, by all accounts, uh, has passed every test that he's had with flying colors. A little shaky at the beginning, maybe with the defense, but that makes sense. You're moving to a different system, getting used to your players. We've continued to get better, um, with each, uh, with each subsequent game. And then no question on the recruiting. He's done a really good job there too. And so we're going to spend the rest of this segment talking about things we like about the Freeman hire and, and maybe things that give us some pause or, or some concern. Um, and as a reminder, if, if you didn't check out our last episode, um, please do. We, we covered um, kind of what led to the Brian Kelly situation, how did it unfold, and, and then we ticked through potential coaching candidates. And really the top two that we focused on were Luke Fickle, the Cincinnati head coach, who is the head coach when Marcus Freeman was the defensive coordinator there, and then Marcus Freeman. So we, we thought Freeman and Fickle were the, were the two most likely choices. And that's not a novel observation, right? That They were the first two names on everyone's list um, vir- virtually wh- wherever you looked. And so part of this is a comparison of Fickle. Part of this is a comparison to the other options that, that Swarbrick had. So we're, we're going to try to look at the pros and cons, be, be as factual and in middle of the road as we can. But I think Overall, we're, we're excited about this. The players are excited. The fan base is excited. Um, first thing we like about Marcus Freeman as a hire, uh, he's a great recruiter. 247 ranks recruiting. So this isn't just players think he's great or, you know, some anecdotal evidence. 247 ranks assistant coaches in how they are at recruiting. And almost always the best assistant recruiters are at Bama and UGA and Ohio State because they have the best recruiting classes. So if you have the best recruiting classes, you probably have the best recruiters. In the 2022 class, Marcus Freeman is the number three recruiter in the entire country. Um, to put that into context, before Marcus Freeman, uh, 247's been doing this since 2013. So they're in the 10th year now of doing this. Before Marcus Freeman, the highest assistance 
for Notre Dame in any given class year ever was Chip Long was rated as the number 12 recruiter in the 2020 class. That was the only time we ever had a top 15 recruiter. Jeff Quinn was number 18 and number 19 a couple of years. Uh, Harry Heastan was number 21 and number 38. Mike Elston was ranged from number 29 to number 45 a few years. If you go back to 2013, Chuck Martin was number 17. So never has Notre Dame in the last 10 years had a recruiter do what Marcus Freeman did in year one as a defensive coordinator here, came in, was instant impact recruiting. And and we talk about that, Mike, all, all the time on the show. Just recruiting is the lifeblood of college football team. If, if you don't have those blue chip recruits, you can't contend for national championships. And that has been the Achilles heel for Notre Dame. If anyone's going to do that well, Marcus Freeman has proven he can do that. Definitely. You can't push the recruiting point hard enough, in my opinion. <clears throat> Obviously, there's a lot more to it. But if you look at the top college football coaches right now and in recent memory, a lot of these guys are just very, very focused, uh, intense, extremely hardworking recruiters. Uh, it seems to be in their in their blood. They just live for it. Uh, Urban Meyer, that guy was a tireless recruiter, one of the best recruiters in the game. Nick Saban, he's one of the best. Lincoln Riley is also a great recruiter. So there's a common theme here. If you look at a lot of the top coaches in college football, um, certainly they know their X's and O's. Certainly they're great developers. Certainly they build good programs, but they're also just they're just uh, they have a dogged, tireless effort on the trail. And Kelly, as great as he was, and Kelly, make no mistake, Kelly is a great coach. The one area that he didn't really seem to uh, enjoy as much, uh, he got a little bit better maybe in recent years, was recruiting. Um, there are just countless stories out there about how um, it's just like not – it's not something that Kelly uh, was is focused on. It kind of was more of a chore. Maybe he preferred being on the golf course a little bit more, not to the extent of maybe someone like Willingham, but uh, someone who tended mm-hmm. to delegate these things. And he would get involved when he needed to. And to his credit, when he did get involved, uh, he was actually a good recruiter in the house talking to recruits. It's something that he had the natural talent for. But with recruiting – Effort is just as important. You got to be making these calls constantly. You got to be communicating with recruits. You got to travel. Um, I read something today that said uh, it, was, it was scoping out the top high schools in the country for talent. And I forgot exactly who the journalist was, but they were saying that uh, they're talking to some of the coaches of these schools, and they said, "Well, here's the thing." Uh, they'd say Ryan Day, uh, Nick Saban. These guys they make a trip at least once a year to these places to connect with the coaches, kind of see what's going on. Um, many of these places had never, uh, Brian Kelly had never showed up to before. So I think that's just one example, but it kind of shows that Kelly maybe, uh, I'm not going to say he was like lazy with recruiting, but he wasn't certainly not putting in an urban Meyer or Nick Saban level of effort on the recruiting trail. And it, it was clear that Brian Kelly delegated recruiting to guys like Mike Elston and guys like Brian Pullian. Brian Pullian's considered a great recruiter. It's a big reason why uh, Kelly brought him in as, as the special teams coordinator. It wasn't because we thought Polino was the greatest special teams coordinator ever. Yeah. It's because we wanted him to be the recruiting coordinator. Uh, that's not going to be the case with Marcus Freeman. With Marcus Freeman, he is going to be recruiter number one, uh, le- leading that coaching staff. Definitely. His, his mindset, I think this may be a direct quote or I may be paraphrasing a bit, but yeah, he, he's all about putting in the work. He doesn't want anyone to outwork him. And it seems like it's something that drives him. It's, I would say, there's a component of him that certainly uh, likes the whole recruiting aspect, the competitive angle of it, building these relationships. Even outside of recruiting, there's so many stories with Freeman already of just random people reaching out to him for things, him responding, being very friendly. It just seems like someone who really enjoys connecting with people and meeting. Um, so I think 
with the one area Notre Dame's fallen short has been recruiting. We've been getting better. It seemed like we were kind of getting closer to that the last couple of years, uh, especially this last year, in large part to Freeman. So hopefully this is the one thing that can kind of push us closer to that uh, talent gap that we have between Bama and Georgia. Um, now, moving to the next thing that we like, the, another thing, the next thing that gives us optimism is results on the field. So recruiting is important, but if you can't coach, that, that would be a, a pretty big demerit in my mind. So um, so far this year, Freeman has done, uh, after a bit of a rocky start, uh, has done a really good job. If you look at SP+, the defensive efficiency rating, we rank number 13, and that's despite some really key players on our defense. Hamilton, Leofau, Simon, Drew White nagging injuries. So we've had a lot of season-ending injuries, and we've also had a lot of just nagging injuries. The linebacker group in particular has been really banged up, which is the group that uh, the group that uh, Freeman focuses on the most because uh, he's the linebacker coach and the defensive coordinator. Um, so a lot of adversity. Um, and we also lost a lot of talent last year, too. No, Jeremiah Wusakaramo, who's been doing really well for the Browns lately, looks like a future star, um, and we saw that last year. Um, so impressive job just continuing to improve this this defense each and every week. And they're really at a level now where um, they're approaching closer to that elite status, With like I said, with a lot of these people out. Um, and this is, this isn't a flash in the pan. He was doing this at Cincinnati too. Uh, in 2020, Cincinnati was number six, uh, in SP plus. So I think we've certainly have enough body of evidence to see that this guy really knows his X's and O's, particularly on the defensive side of the ball. The, the one pushback you could come up with if, if you're trying to poke a hole in it is that he took over for a really great defense started by Mike Elko and, and, um, uh, Clark Lee, right? So he, right. he started with a really good starting point. But I think two different programs in back-to-back years where he's produced a top 15 defense. And I think, I think number 13 in SP plus is actually higher than what Elko and, and Lee were, were able to generate. I think they peaked at number 16 or 17. Don't, don't quote me on that. But, um, overall, this is a really, really good defensive unit led by Freeman now at both Cincy and at, um, and at Notre Dame. So it's not like this is just some young up and coming coach. It's someone who's proven it on the field, uh, in, in a really big way on, on, on a big stage. The next thing we really like. So number one, recruiting. Number two, great production as a defensive coach. Number three is continuity. Um, and continuity comes in a bunch of different ways. So we're, we're going to talk about it in a few different ways. So the first area of continuity is for recruiting. We, we talked in our breaking, uh, show a, a couple days ago about, needing to move quickly to hold together their recruiting class. Early signing days on December 15th. Currently, Notre Dame has the number four recruiting class in the country. That will likely slip a little bit. We, we knew that. A lot of the big programs that get the big five-star recruits where Notre Dame doesn't do as well, those come in later um, outside of the early signing period. So I'd expect that number four class, though, will finish six, seven, eight. And when you go through a head coaching change, it's a big risk you lose players. Now, an upside is... Brian Kelly recruited students to come to Notre Dame for Notre Dame, not for Brian Kelly. And that, that was a part of the Brian Kelly pitch is, is he wasn't, um, you know, he wasn't the face of the program in those recruiting homes during those visits. So hopefully this class stays together. We had one D commit uh, outside the top 300, kind of a high end three star, uh, but not a four star recruit. We had one D commit so far, but in general, there's a lot of positivity um, around this program. We'll come back a little bit to recruiting reaction actually in, in maybe a reason for concern, but across the board, the recruits were extremely positive and were actually 
campaigning for Freeman to be the coach. Um, I think that continuity for this class is, is going to be really important. Yeah, Brett, uh, I think I have, this looks like good news. Uh, Mike Elson literally, he just tweeted something a couple minutes ago. Uh, Notre Dame is home, 12 years and counting. Let's ride, fellas. Um, so I don't awesome. know if that's, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm taking that to assume that he's, uh, staying. Um, but, and, and if that's the case, that's huge. But Brett, I think your point on continuity is, is a really important one. So we talked about it. You talked about it for recruiting. Um, but it's also big just generally for, for the current players. The transfer portal risk is real. Um, if, if we just were like losing all of our assistance left and right, um, you could kind of be seeing what, what you're seeing a little bit more at Oklahoma right now. Just a ton of transfers following Kelly to LSU, uh, a bunch of players following like their assistants wherever they're going, or maybe, uh, players even like looking for, for greener pastures. So I think that's big. The program's in a really healthy place. And if that weren't the case, then maybe you look to shake things up a little bit more, bring in some, some outside, um, some outside talent. Uh, but that's not the case here. This program's been humming. It's as healthy as it's been in decades. And I think, uh, you know, when you're considering all that, it's, it's, it's critical to try to maintain that stability as much as possible. Um, so keeping someone like Freeman, Tommy Reese, that's huge. If Elston, it sounds like, it sounds like he's saying based on that, Elston is huge. This is, no one has more experience with the Notre Dame program on staff than Mike Elston. Um, also just great, one of the best position groups that we have on the defensive line. So if that's true. I think, um, that just further like builds the stability that you need. And I think, for a first-time head coach at a place like Notre Dame, that is absolutely absolutely essential to surround that head coach with that. Um, so, yeah, big news if that's true. Um, and then I, I guess moving on to the next point that we have, uh, or actually, Brett, I think you had a point maybe on, on Sam yeah, Asaf. Just, just on the roster, I've been texting with Sam Asaf, again, a, a personal connection of mine, and, and, and he's been on, on the show before. And We've been texting, and I've been pushing Sam for any breaking news or anything like that. It's like we're not using him as some, you know, mole in, in, inside the locker room. But it has been really interesting seeing his perspective as a player. The locker room is pumped. The locker room is beyond excited right now about this Freeman hire, about Tommy Reese staying. And so you talk about the transfer portal. You know, one of the things I was worried about was a guy like Logan Diggs is from Louisiana. And now... Brian Kelly goes to LSU in Louisiana. Do you keep a guy like Logan Diggs? Don't know. Um, but from what I'm hearing out of the locker room, out of the guys on this team, it gives me a lot of confidence that you're not going to see a recruiting drop off, but you're not also not going to see some transfer portal exodus. I, I think that's really important. The third area of continuity, and, and Mike, you started hitting on it, is the coaching staff. So Tommy Reese has announced he's staying um, and will get more autonomy to run the offense. Now, it's a mixed bag. He's he's 29 years old. He's also really young. He took over for this job at age 27. He was in our class at, at, at Notre Dame. And a lot of fans still aren't huge Tommy fans because, you know, he wasn't the greatest quarterback in Notre Dame history. And, and so by all accounts, I, I think that brings some mixed emotion for fans. But he is an up-and-coming coach in, in the industry. The players love him. He will be a head coach at some point. I don't know when, but Tommy Reese will be a head coach somewhere for a big-time program. And it's, it's great to retain him on the staff. And when we talk about results, um, he's produced too. Uh, in SP plus efficiency ratings, the offense was number 10 last year, um, number 21 this year. So a bit of a drop off, but a new quarterback, three new offensive linemen, a bunch of injuries at left tackle. Uh, we returned almost zero production of wide receivers. So we knew that was going to come down this year. We, we knew that. And, 
And so the fact that he's put together two top 20-ish uh, offenses from from an efficiency perspective, again, SP+, plus, not points scored, not touchdowns, not whatever other old-school metrics you want to look at. But in terms of the efficiency ratings, he's he's put together really solid offenses on the field. The other name we didn't mention yet is, is Matt Bayless, uh, strength and conditioning coach. He was a huge part of the 2016 reboot after the 4-8 season. We, we replaced the strength and conditioning uh, coach brought in Matt Bayless, and he's been one of the biggest parts about player development, about really getting guys to go from, you know, mid-level recruits to real contributors, right? JOK talks a lot about him, Jeremiah Wosu-Koromoa. Kyle Hamilton raves about him. Kyron Williams raves about him. Um, he is turning guys into high school players, into NFL players. And and so him staying in place is a huge win for this program to get him there. Um and then maybe the last thing I'd say about the coaching staff is Elston has been sort of Kelly's number two for 20 years. Um, I don't know if Polian will stay on the staff. I don't know if Jeff Quinn will stay on the staff, but both Quinn and Polian have head coaching experience. So between Elston, Polian, Quinn, surrounding old school coaches like that around a 35-year-old Marcus Freeman, around a 29-year-old Tommy Reese, it gives me a lot of conviction that where you might have concerns about their youth, you're balancing that with a lot of experience. Yep. Um, yeah, definitely. I think I think the retention here with the coaching staff is big. And actually, I just as you were talking, Brett, I checked uh, Twitter again to see if there's anything else. So Elston, that's confirmed. Elston is staying. Um, another big piece, Lance Taylor is also staying. So I'll keep my eyes closed. Awesome. So look, we're this coaching staff is largely staying together. So um, that was one of the biggest worries when Brian Kelly announced he was leaving. I was uh, fearful of just this mass exodus. Um, everything that we built up, the stability, all the all the processes that we have in place, just everything humming like a well-oiled machine, just going away. But it seems like this coaching staff, which is uh, one of the better coaching staff, I think since Kelly took over, honestly, this may be the best coaching staff that we've that we've had since uh, that I can remember. Um, they're staying intact, and that's exactly what you need. Like I said, with someone like a new coach, uh, but it's also great because we've Kelly. He put a lot of work in building this up. Um, there's a reason that we're, we've been playing as well as we have, and that's because it was a long process building all this up. And now all the pieces that have, uh, been making this come together, they're staying. So I think that's, that's a lot of room for optimism now. Hopefully, hopefully someone like Paulian stays. Um, hopefully, um, you know, hopefully some of these other coaches stay too. I think McNulty, I can't remember if he was a head coach or not before, but I know that he's also a very experienced, um, experienced head coach as well. So, um, yeah, I think that that's a, again he's staying, so that's big. Now, uh, moving on to our next point uh, for the season. So, less about moving like what this means for the program in the next couple of years, and more about like this season in particular. Uh, the college football uh, playoff commissioner Barta he made a comment um, when they did the rankings that head coaching changes are a factor to consider, along with uh, considerations around key players, opt outs, injuries, etc. So. Uh, there was a fairly strong reaction to that in the media. Um, a lot of, uh, a lot of the talking heads, a lot of reporters thought, um, that that's a bit of a ridiculous notion. You'd be punishing players who had absolutely nothing to do with a coach essentially quitting on them. Um, however, if they are considering it, we now have a head coach. And if they're thinking about how a team is going to perform moving forward, you could make an argument that, uh, the team may have a case for performing even better than they did before. I imagine the team's very frustrated. Their coach essentially told them, hey, I don't think you guys are good enough to win a title. I'm hopping to LSU. 
that creates an angry team, an angry, dia- angry dynamic, an angry team, one that could uh, be looking to make some sort of statement. And then you're keeping the coaching staff intact. So I think from a playoff standpoint, we should not be getting dinged anymore for not for not having a head coach. Um, in fact, you know, I don't think this is something that's going to move the needle either way. But I think that at the least, they should be able to throw out any impact that we would have on on having a head coach. Now, granted, our odds of getting into the playoffs. Um, they're, they're mixed. Like maybe we get in, maybe we don't. I tend to lean more towards it's probably somewhere around a 30% chance. It could happen. Um, I'll, I'll be ecstatic if it happens. If it doesn't happen, I'm not going to be shocked. Um, but, um, I think if we do, we have a lot of pieces in place to hopefully make a run and, and hopefully, uh, ride an angry team ready to make a statement. Yeah, we'll, we'll get back to bowl possibilities and, and playoff scenarios at, at the end of this show. And, and again, we're, we're doing this real time and, and we're new podcasters and, and we're maybe not as well researched in, in these real time shows. So just to keep recapping here as we go through this, great recruiter, great results on the field for Freeman and then really great continuity, continuity for recruiting, continuity for the coaching staff, continuity for the players on the roster and continuity for this season, continuity to keep the hopes alive of getting to a playoff. Also, if you don't get to a playoff, continuity for a chance to win the first um, New Year's Six or major bowl game for Notre Dame since 1994. So you're you're talking 27 years since Notre Dame's won a major bowl game, and this might be our best shot at it, uh, whether we make the playoff or not. But certainly, if we don't make the playoff, and you get Michigan State or Pitt or Wake Forest, um, continuity in terms of ha- having a shot to get something done in the first game of the Marcus Freeman era, he could do something that Notre Dame hasn't accomplished in 27 years. Um, continuity helps with that. Another quick thing we, we really, really like is diversity in, in coaching is an issue. It's gotten better in recent years um, across all sports. This has been a, a big topic is, is diversity of coaching in, in sports, especially like football, that are disproportionately played by black student athletes, and then you're not seeing black coaches on the sidelines. For Power 5 coaches, I think Marcus Freeman will now be the seventh active um, uh, black uh, Power 5 coach with Dino Babers. Mel Tucker, James Franklin, David Shaw, Mike Loxley, Carl Durrell. I, I might be missing a couple, but uh, before the show, quickly tried to pull that together. So now with Freeman, about 11% of head coaches at Power 5 programs um, are black. I think that's really awesome. I think it's it's great for Freeman. I think it's great for the university that certainly, you know, he, he shouldn't be hired because he's black or because he's not black. He should be hired because he's a really good football coach, and that's why he got this job. But I think the trajectory for the sport and the trajectory for Notre Dame athletics, um, I, I think it's a cool part of the story. Definitely. Um, yeah, and then I think uh, another point that we want to make is if, if you take a step back and look at the profile of uh, blue-chip coaches, um, so we're talking these are like top 20 winningest programs that are still Power 5 programs. So, so no Yale, no Harvard, Princeton, Penn. These are hires in the last 20 years. Um, and we're only looking at examples of internal hires here. Basically situations that are, that are comparable to, uh, what we have right now with, with Marcus Freeman. Um, and so the examples that we came up with, and there actually weren't that many, um, I, I guess I actually this, this was the exhaustive I, list. This, this was the full this is, list. Yeah. I went through every coaching hire of basically a top 20 winningest program in, in all time. These are the only internal promotions. Uh, to head coach in, in, in the last 20 years. Yeah. So it's, it's surprisingly short. Uh, Ryan Day, he took over from Urban Meyer. Lincoln Riley, he took over from Bob Stoops. Clay Helton, 
program was struggling a bit. Uh, scholarship reductions. This is one of the probably the less successful examples. Well, it is it is one of the less successful examples. Coach O, uh, defensive line coach at LSU. Um, he took o- he took over, and then uh, and then Dabo, who was a wide receivers coach at Clemson when he took over. So uh, Helton was weird. He actually had a couple successful seasons, um, but generally, I, I don't think anyone would consider that a, uh, a successful tenure. And the other four were successful. Coach O's was a little mixed, but the guy won a national title with. Arguably the greatest college football team of all time. So I think, I think you have to certainly chalk that up as a success. Um, and I think if you're a Notre Dame fan, you gotta, you gotta look at that. And I think you take that as an encouraging sign. Um, all these places, these programs were in a good place when, uh, they went with the internal hire and the new guy came in and just kept things going and in some cases built on it. I think you would say Lincoln Riley built on what Bob Stoops had at the time. Bob Stoops won a title way back in the day, but I think when Lincoln Riley took over, he was able to add like a renewed energy to that program. Um, Dabo really, really upgraded the Clemson program from where it was when he took over. So I think, you know, if you're, if you're looking at, at, at the history for what, what could happen next, um, I think these are all, all uh, pretty positive signs. Yeah, I think the other part about this that stood out to me is it, it, we did a show earlier this year on what could have happened if, if Notre Dame fired Brian Kelly in 2016, and we looked at hiring in that time frame. And the success rate for coaching hires was 20 to 25%. Uh, 20 to 25% of the time, head coaching hires work out where that program then becomes um, you know, a, a New Year's Six Bowl team or a 10-win team um, with with the new coach. It, it is tough to get coaching hires right. We have a sample size of five, so a very low sample size in Day, Riley, Helton, Cocho, Dabo. Um, but it's an 80% hit rate, and and that really says something. The other thing that really stood out to me was these guys were also pretty young. Ryan Day was 39 when he took over to Ohio State. Lincoln Riley was 32 or 33. Um, Dabo was 40. So if, if one of the concerns is you know, Marcus Freeman is too young. Um, there's precedent out there that when it's an internal hire for programs doing well, right? Ohio State was doing really well when Day took over. Bob Stoops had Oklahoma in a great place. Um, Tommy Bowden was a Hall of Famer at Clemson, and they were winning eight, nine games a year when, when Dabo took over. So when it's a young up-and-coming coordinator who's given a stable program, the the history is limited. The data points are really, really positive when you look at when, when you look at this list of five coaches. Definitely. And then the one that didn't work out, uh, Clay Helton. I mean, that program was not in a good place at the time. They had massive scholarship reductions. Um, and he, given those circumstances, I think he did okay for a few years. But it, it's not it's not shocking that the one example that we point out that didn't work um, didn't have this perfect machine that he was stepping into like some of these other coaches. Yeah, and, and, and to remind our listeners. Clay Helton was not taking over for Pete Carroll going to the NFL. Clay Helton was taking over for Lane Kiffin, who, you know, pretty much torched the program. And, and we were all sitting here in South Bend laughing and, and loving what was going on in, in USC. Um, but he, to, to your point, he, he was not taking over for a program that, that was in a good, healthy place like the others. Yeah. I mean, it was bad enough to where they, they fired Lane Kiffin, uh, infamously on the, on the tarmac. So they couldn't, <laughs> they couldn't even wait for, for him to travel before they fired him. So, um, but yeah, so anyways, we talked, we talked about the positives and I think it's important to focus on the positives first. However, with any coach, as Brett mentioned, 
um, there are risks. Anytime you have some sort of coaching change, there's just an element of chaos. There's an element of the unknowns that step in that you don't know. So we, we would we would be uh, remiss if we didn't talk about some of the things that make us a little bit nervous. So uh, we, we hinted at this a little bit already, and we kind of um, talked about some of the mitigating factors with it. But the first thing that comes to mind with Marcus Freeman is his age. He's 35. So he's really young. He doesn't have as much coaching experience as a lot of people out there. Um, however, uh, you know, as Brett, Brett mentioned kind of before, there are examples of uh, – of, of this working. Uh, Pat, Fitz, Pat Fitzgerald, he was 31 when Northwestern hired him. Bear Bryant, way back in the day, was 32 when he became the coach at Maryland and obviously became one of the greatest coaches of all time. We already mentioned Lincoln Riley was 34, or uh, 33 actually, when he's the head coach at Oklahoma. Dabo, 40. Kirby Smart, uh, a little bit older, but 40, that's still pretty young. And then we've certainly seen this in the NFL. Sean McVay is one of the most notable examples, and he, he's had success with the Rams. He was 32. Kyle Shanahan, 37. Uh, and Matt LaFleur, uh, 40 years old. So um, he is young, yes, but um, there are plenty of examples of that not being an issue if it's the right guy and if you have the right program. And I do think, even from a recruiting standpoint, I think having a younger guy, assuming that he's successful, it adds a certain element to the program that maybe you don't get. I think there's a certain like uh, cool factor that, that uh, Freeman could inject into this program, similar maybe to what uh, Lincoln Riley had at Oklahoma before he left. And that's something, as great a coach as Brian Kelly was, that's something that I don't think anyone would argue that that he ever gave to to the program at, at at any point in time. For sure, I mean, you know, Brian Kelly trying to do the cool gangster sunglasses thing that was more like a spoof, versus <laughs> yeah. you know, Marcus Freeman like winking and every single you know N- Notre Dame female fan melting. Uh, there's a very very different cool suave swagger to, to Marcus Freeman. Uh, that that almost has a Brady Quinn aura about him st- starting to build in in South Bend. Yeah. The the next thing that made us nervous wor- worth talking about was Swarbrick forced into this was was his hand forced and and what do we mean by that? Um, the recruits and players really rallied around this. If if you're not on Twitter and you're not following it, it was crazy. Um, Tyson Ford, Jalen Sneed, Drake Bowen, Josh Burnham, Nolan Ziegler, Aiden Schuler, a host of others. Those are all committed recruits were tweeting hire Freeman. Um, current players, Tyler Buckner tweeted, pay Tommy Reese, Drew Pine did, Isaiah Foskey was getting in on it. Kurt Heinisch was getting on it. A whole bunch of existing players were saying, uh, hashtag Freeman era. Um, so there was a social media campaign started by the current players and incoming recruits. And it really felt like Notre Dame was maybe already leaning towards Freeman, but boy, it sure felt like social media led by the players, led by the guys in the locker room, um, were, were making this decision. So did that tie Swarbrick's hands? Did it especially tie his hands knowing on Sunday, uh, in four days is going to be the final college football playoff rankings. And Notre Dame's got a shot to be in a top four, and it's a much better shot if, if we've got a coach. And the reason why that's a concern is, sure, if if we didn't hire Marcus Freeman and we hired Luke Fickle or Matt Campbell or whoever else, would have we lost Reese and lost Elston and lost Matt Bales? Maybe. Would have we lost recruits? Almost certainly there would have been decommits, and, and, and we would have taken a hit in this 2022 class. Um, but Dan Rubenstein of the Solid Verbal was talking about this on, on their show this week, and he said it really well. A program like Notre Dame should not be making a hire based on the 2022 recruiting class. They should be making a hire to win championships over a long period of time. And I, I thought that was simple, and it was really well said. So there's this concern of, did Swarbrick act quickly? I don't think so. 
Um, the reason why I don't think so is because he didn't need to make this move now. If he wanted Luke Fickle, right? If, if, if you just play out the scenario of wanting Luke Fickle and Fickle says, I'm not interviewing before the season's over. I'll, I'll interview. I'll consider your job, but not until January. Marcus Freeman wouldn't have left. Everyone was worried Marcus Freeman was going to go to LSU to be the defensive coordinator. Marcus Freeman had two outcomes in this hiring process. He was either going to be Notre Dame's head coach or Luke Fickle is going to become Notre Dame's head coach. And Marcus Freeman is going to be candidate number one to replace Luke Fickle at Cincinnati. And you would rather be Cincinnati's head coach than you would be a defensive coordinator. So if you said we had to wait 45 days, you know Marcus Freeman's going to stick around and coach the Irish and wait and see what uh, plays out with, with Fickle. It'd have been awkward. It would have been uncomfortable. We maybe would have lost some recruits. Maybe Tommy Reese goes to follow Kelly. Like we'll never know what unfolded. But you know Marcus Freeman was going to wait to see the Fickle chip fall first if we wanted Luke Fickle. So what this tells me is that Marcus Freeman was candidate A. Um, because otherwise there wouldn't have been a reason to rush. We, we could have kept our team in place. We could have hung on to recruiting. Freeman would have gotten us through a bowl game. And then we could have had our guy Luke Fickle if that was the long-term smart thing. So I don't think that this was a rush decision by Swarbrick. I think he knew who candidate A was right away. Uh, right away, this was the rumored name from guys like Mick Asaf, from, from guys in the locker room, that, that this was the top candidate that everyone around the program was was hinting at. And then Swarbrick, knowing this was his guy, did move quickly because the speed of it does help, right? The speed of it does nudge in the right direction recruiting. It does nudge in the right direction the college football playoff ranking committee. Um, and, and so all of those things are good and positive. But if it wasn't option A, uh, I don't think he had to rush. So in my mind, this wasn't a rush decision. Mike, what do you think on that one? Yeah, I mean, I think I think at the least it was a one A one B scenario. So I mean, it's possible there could be a very there could have been a, maybe a very slight preference for Fickle, but I do think if that was the case, it wasn't so dramatic to where. Um, yeah, I don't think it was so dramatic to where like the the benefits of kind of like wrapping this up more quickly. Um, outweighed waiting because there are there are some there are some benefits like you said i think it could have been uncomfortable we could have had we could have had uh freeman kind of still coaching maybe like you said maybe he doesn't like jump for one of these jobs and he sticks around and we can wait but i do think wrapping this up now i think the short-term benefits are it makes it much more likely that we can keep the rest of the coaching staff in place which is already happening it's happening as we speak (coughs) there's like less likely kelly's going to be able to poach one of those guys as uncertainty looms over the program it's more likely someone like tommy reeks is going to hop to lsu um, so I think we avoid that. And I do agree that you don't want to make, it, make any decisions based on like an immediate recruiting class. Cause if you bring in a really good coach, that's fine. Like maybe you take a little short term hit, but it'll work out. Um, however, if, if, if you have a guy that you think is the top, um, and maybe he's like equal to another guy, um, at that point, I think it, it you know, at that point, it's like you can kind of start weighing some of these shorter-term considerations a bit, and certainly sure. with Freeman. And, and in this case, it's no question like these these short-term benefits are pretty big. It's, a lot of the recruits would potentially leave. You probably start to see transfers. Like I said, you might not be able to retain some of the staff. So um, I think it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think like Swarbrick is is, is very methodical. He's very um, deliberate. He takes his time. He doesn't really rush any decisions unless he believes it's uh, the right one. Um, and so I think he, I think he got his guy. I mean, all the reports early on were saying that Freeman was the guy that we were honing in on, and this was before uh, the really big social media push. Certainly, the, the players had voiced their opinion that they wanted Freeman, 
Um, but the social media push, I think, uh, all that stuff seemed to happen after, um, there were reports out that we were, we were focused on Freeman as priority number one. That, that's a great, that's a great observation. It, it might be a bit of revisionist history to say that the players and recruits drove this when, when in reality, um, it was already out there. We were interviewing Freeman. And so kind of what happened first, chicken and an egg situation. The, the other part about this, I should just admit on our show two days ago when, when we were talking about the Kelly news, I said Swarbrick needed to react in 96 hours. I thought it was urgent to get this spot filled, um, to, you know, get it done before the playoff rankings on Sunday, to get it done before the December 15th, uh, early signing period for, for recruiting. And as I slept on it, uh, the next day, and, and I tweeted this back out, I actually took the opposite view. I, I changed my mind on that, where I felt like um, you could have Freeman, Reese in sort of interim roles or kind of co-coaches or d- doing their thing without an interim head coach above them, and you just got the defensive coach and the offensive coach, which is where Swarbrick had this headed, and then wait until January, which would get you on the other side of that early signing period with Freeman and Reese still being the guys to hold together that class, and then go make your hire, then go hire Freeman or hire Fickle or hire whoever else you wanted to. Um, and again, the silver lining to that is moving faster is still better, right? Moving faster, all else being equal, gives you those those benefits, Mike, you, you were just talking about. But yep. did, did want to shout out the urgency that we stressed a couple days ago um, wound up playing out the right way, right? We, we got this done in 48 hours. I don't know if we needed to get it done in 48 hours, but but it's great we did. We've talked about this a little bit. The other reason here for concern, um, moving on from from the question of was was Swarbrick's hand forced, the the next question is, is Fickle better? Um, If you would have asked that question three months ago, the answer was, yeah, he just beat Notre Dame. I guess that was two months ago. He he had just beat Notre Dame. If you'd asked this a year ago, he was Freeman's boss, right? He was the head coach at Cincinnati. Freeman was one of his assistants. Heck, you probably would have thought if you hired Fickle, you get Freeman as the defensive coordinator a year ago. Um, so definitely a year ago. What we know now um, is that Freeman is a great recruiter at a Power 5 program like Notre Dame. We still don't know that about Fickle. We know that he's a pretty good recruiter and he's doing a pretty good job at Cincinnati. But being a high-end group of five recruiter, of going out and you know getting a, a bunch of quantity of three stars is a lot different than going and snagging five stars. Um, and so you, we still don't know how fickle is as a recruiter. And and then the other part is we know now that Freeman brings the value of continuity. He brings the value of a known commodity in Tommy Reese, a known commodity in Elston and Bayless and everything else, whereas Fickle would have had to bring in a new staff, um, maybe guys he already had at Cincy, but not guys that have coached at a Power 5 level. Um, and so I think... You said it earlier. I, I really like your terming. This became a 1A, 1B situation that I wouldn't have said a few months ago. I wouldn't have said a year ago. Um, but I think Freeman's shown enough as a coach and, and enough as a recruiter and the rest of the coaching staff where, if anything, Freeman's preferred over Fickle. Although Fickle, I think he's a great coach. I, I think Luke Fickle is going to do really well wh- wherever he decides to coach in, in the future and got a ton of respect for him. Definitely. Yeah, I think I think the one A one B characterization is key here. I think uh, I'm with you on it. I would fickle. Maybe even when we talked on our last podcast, I think maybe I was leaning a little bit towards fickle. But once it's settled, um, they each have their own pros and cons. Uh, fickle certainly is more established as a head coach. Freeman has not been a head coach. Um, it's clear both coaches 
are very strong with their X's and O's. So I'll say that that's kind of like a, you can throw that one out. We know that Freeman is a great recruiter, like you said. So that's a plus. We can't say that about Fickle. So at that point, to me, it's pretty much a wash. Um, and then, and then that's when you can start focusing on these shorter term benefits. And honestly, some of them may not be so, sh- so short term, depending on the impact that they have on the stability. And, um, w- once I kind of started thinking about it that way, uh, to me, it be- became pr- pretty clear that, uh, you want to get Freeman and you want to wrap them up quickly. Um, and again, you got to give credit to the administration. This program has been a hallmark of stability and consistency. This is as big of a black swan event that you could have for a football program. And 40, like really in the matter of, uh, I don't know how many hours it's been. It's been a couple of, it's, it feels like it's been a month at this point, but it's, in just a matter of a couple of days, we've essentially uh, solidified most of the key people on our staff. Um, so about as good of a response as possible as you could have. And um, I honestly, at this point, feel uh, optimistic moving forward. Perhaps Freeman, someone who can inject that juice that we need to take it to the next level. Um, and I did mention one, one point that I did mention that I want to circle back on. So Freeman, yeah, he doesn't have any head coach experience. The Notre Dame role is often more of a CEO type role. That's certainly how Kelly treated it. Uh, but the, and, again, and, and how Swarbrick defined it in his press conference. In, in Swarbrick's press conference yesterday, talking about who he's looking for, he said he's looking for a CEO-like role, which a lot of people read, oh, he's not looking at Marcus Freeman. So um, uh, agreed. D- d- definitely head coach experience w- was on the list per Swarbrick. Right. Although he did acknowledge maybe it's not as important as it was um, with the last coaching search. With the last coaching search, it was absolutely essential. You needed head coaching experience. You needed a program builder. But um, and, and a lot of players actually pushed back on that notion with Swarbrick. They said, you know, that was like an element of Kelly that we didn't really like as much. We would have liked someone who's a little bit more involved. I guess it's easy for the players to say that. Um, you, you can have the players and coaches can have different perspectives. It's similar to like an employer's perspective with a senior person on their team. Uh, the more junior people on the team may not see the value that the, the senior person is bringing, but it certainly is there. So, uh, but anyways, I think it's, uh, we kind of touched on this a little bit. There's a growing trend, um, where maybe some coaches don't necessarily need some of this head coaching experience. They can kind of, uh, if, you know, they can kind of, um, uh, if the program's ready to go, they can kind of step in. Um, there are, we said there aren't as many like examples of this, uh, over the last 20 years, but the most of the ones that have happened have actually been more recent. Um, I guess with the exception of maybe, maybe Dabo. So, um, it certainly can be done. The, ca- the examples that we have are mostly positive. Um, and, um, again, Freeman's he uh, like the young and experienced aspect can be a pro or a con here. And, um, I think with the stable program, I think it's something that we can, we can leverage into a, a strength. Yeah. I think if it, without having done the amount of research and conversations we've, we've done in, in the last couple of days, I would have said this was maybe my biggest concern is that a program as big as Notre Dame, you need someone that's been a head coach before. And, what I've come around to is I, we mentioned it that there's been five examples of a blue blood program, a blue chip program like Notre Dame that made an internal hire of someone who didn't have head coaching experience. Which even a couple of those Clay Helton and, and Coach O had had been head coaches before. So the other three Ryan Day, Lincoln Riley, Dabo those are the examples of internal hires at a blue chip program that didn't have prior head coaching experience. And the underlying theme of all of those is that it was a stable program at the time of that promotion to from coordinator to head coach or in Dabo's case, wide receiver coach to, to head coach. The other part of it is that there's been over 30 hires at what we defined as the 15 or so 
blue chip programs. And you, you could argue with us with the list, but just we're taking the 15 winningest all-time programs. Those 15 programs have all averaged about two to three higher. So th- there's literally been um, close to 40 coaching changes in the last 20 years at those 15 programs. And only five of them were internal promotions from a coordinator. The rest were almost entirely all external hires with head coaching experience. There are, ex- there are exceptions. Kirby Smart went to Georgia. Uh, he was the defensive coordinator at Alabama. So there were some lateral um, hires in there. Um, that was a coordinator moving up to head coach. But otherwise, almost all of them were head coaches um, getting hired to now a you know higher level head coaching position. And that did not have nearly as high of a success rate. Again, we talked about this in a prior show. You know, 25% of the time, uh, coaching changes work out. And that doesn't matter if you're blue chip, if you're power five, if you're group of five. um, Coaching changes are hard. So a super limited sample size when you're talking about Day, Dabo, and and Lincoln Riley. But it it gave me more conviction just looking at the data and, and the track record that internal promotions of up-and-coming coordinators has some real legs to it, um, maybe more so than going out and finding the external head coach um, who's done it somewhere else before but doesn't have alignment with the new institution they're at. Um, that doesn't work nearly as well as often. So um, e- even just looking at the hiring data, again, limited sample sizes, um, got me more excited about Freeman, even if he wasn't a head coach before. Definitely. Um, all right, so I'm going to get into my overall reaction, my overall takeaway here. We've touched on a lot of this already. Um, as I mentioned, um, as I had let this whole situation settle, I, I really came around on Marcus Freeman as, as being the preferred option. I saw him, as I mentioned before, a 1A, 1B um, situation longer term compared to Fickle, and then the short-term benefits just completely outweighed um, any, any uh, and anything else that Fickle would be able to offer. So... Um, that I think that was one of the primary considerations for me, um, and I think as I mentioned, this just solidifies the stability of the program. Uh, the recruiting outlook is positive. Um, it helps like hemorrhage any recruiting and uh, transfer damage that could be happened uh, that could happen. And then uh, I, I think one other factor is, and this was a, this was an observation that I had. Um, so people could point to Bob Davey. You know, he was like the notable internal hire after Lou Holtz didn't work out too well. That was a long time ago. And if you look at like the reaction that Marcus Freeman has gotten from pretty much anyone that he's interacted with, it's always very, very positive, very, very strong, extremely charismatic. Uh, we saw this with the social media push recently from the players. This is a guy that the players love. It seems like everyone in the program is just rallying behind him. Um, and I can't imagine that there was anything like that with Bob Davey. Um, so I, I think this is a situation where there's just like an element here that, that feels a little bit different. It feels like this is a guy that maybe has like that, that, that special like factor that can really fire up the team, really galvanize people around the program, really sell the program, um, and just be that, that, uh, that motivator and leader that we want with the program. So, um, I don't know if, I don't know if I can give it an A plus because an A plus would be just that, that shocking hire out of nowhere that no one saw coming, uh, you know, like hiring, uh, Nick Saban or someone like that. Uh, that would be an A plus plus. I think we probably have to come up with another tier for that. But oh um, yeah, I'll give this an A. I think that the, I think part of that also has to deal with how quickly the university responded here. They were very efficient uh, and they handled the situ- situation very well. One that was extremely chaotic. A couple of days later, I feel very calm now um, and in fact optimistic, which uh, which says a lot given where we were a few days ago. 
For sure. A- emotional roller coaster. I-, I agree with everything you just said, Mike. I've, I've also got this as an A. Um, when we did our show two days ago, I- we said Fickle and Freeman were, were our top choices and we got one of them. So that, that makes it an A. Um, good luck, Oklahoma. And what I'd also add to that, that I've reflected on the last, the last couple of days, when we did that show earlier this season about who else we could have hired if we fired Brian Kelly after four and eight, one of the things we said is hiring a new coach when you are four and eight is terrible like that is a really bad place to be recruits are lost left and right the program's in shambles it's just a full-on rebuild um when coaching changes are generally successful or at least more likely to be successful is when a program is in a good place and we've also said that it's extremely rare for a coach to win their first title after more than four years um at a program in fact in the bcs and college football playoff era it's only happened twice with Dabo in his eighth season and Mac Brown in his eighth season no one's done it later on than, than their eighth year and all of the other coaches got their first title at a program in in years one through four so for Brian Kelly in year 12 the writing was statistically on the wall that the writing was on the wall that Brian Kelly wasn't going to get there or if he was he was going to do something that literally has not been done in over 20 years of quote-unquote modern football and so with that in place, with, with Kelly peaking, if you will, right? We, we plateaued, but we plateaued at a peak. We, we, we peaked and then leveled off at a top 10 program. That's about as good of a time to make this change as possible. Now, Notre Dame didn't get to pick that. Kelly forced this issue, right? That this wasn't Swarbrick's doing. Um, but one of the underlying rumors we've heard this week, and this, this is not a credible rumor, right? This is message board stuff. So don't, don't quote Gar's talk podcast as, as saying this is gospel, but that um, Notre Dame was refusing to give Kelly an extension beyond 2024 when his current contract runs out, unless if he won a title. And so because we weren't willing to extend him, then that's why Kelly was so excited about a 10-year deal that takes him through 2031 at LSU. I don't know if that's true or not, but it makes a lot of sense to me. It makes a lot of sense to me that we weren't going to extend a coach into year 17 at a program without a title. And so we were going to let this run its, its course through his 2024 contract. And if he got a title, great. If he didn't, writing was on the wall. I would rather than make that move now. If that's where we were heading in the next few years, I'd rather make that move now when the program's got all of this momentum. So I think that's another just cherry on top that, that gets me really optimistic going forward. So with that, we're going to close out our thoughts on the Marcus Freeman situation. We're now going to turn our attention to a quick segment on uh, Notre Dame Bowl affiliations and where this season might shake out here in the next few days. I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving! The show goes on! This is my home! They're going to need a wrecking ball to take me out of here. <laughs> They're going to need to send in the National Guard of SWAT team because I ain't going nowhere. All right, Notre Dame's regular season is over. We were planning to do this segment as a conclusion to the Stanford recap. Of course, we didn't get there with the Brian Kelly breaking news. We're going to spend a few minutes talking about uh, Notre Dame's bowl tie-ins as an independent, um, primarily through the ACC. Also, our status in terms of getting into New Year's New Year's Six bowls, 
and then we will very, very quickly recap Notre Dame and where we stand in the college football playoff rankings and whether or not uh, we've got a shot to get into the top four. Spoiler alert, we do. Spoiler alert, it's an outside shot looking in. Okay, so looking at the bowl tie-ins, uh, as we all know, Notre Dame is an independent. Uh, if you don't know that, uh, I'd probably be asking why you're listening to a Notre Dame podcast. Um, <laughs> but uh, So we have ACC bowl game tie-ins, um, and these can get really confusing. There's a lot of contractual tie-ins. There's a lot of offsetting terms. Um, it can be a lot to keep track of. Um, so we're going to dive into that a bit. So one thing to know is if Indy is within one win of an ACC team, uh, then they are eligible for all ACC bowl game affiliations except for the Orange Bowl. Um, the ACC champ will, they go to the Orange Bowl, or in the case that the ACC champ is, uh, in the college football playoff, then the next highest, uh, rated ACC team goes to the Orange Bowl. But never Notre Dame. Um, and the path to the Orange Bowl, it's a little more complicated for Notre Dame. It's actually through the other side of that bowl game. Uh, so the bowl game, has, uh, the Orange Bowl has promised three appearances to the SEC and Big Ten from 2024 to 2035. After that, Notre Dame is an option, but cannot appear more than twice. So a bit of a weird dynamic going on here, but that's the situation. This year, the Orange Bowl is in the college football playoff semifinals, so we, we can just completely ignore it. And then looking at the rest of the New Year's Six Bowl, so this really comes down to the college football playoff committee's final rankings, which in this case will be this coming Sunday. Several of those are at-large bowl games. The Cotton Bowl, Fiesta Bowl, and Peach Bowls do not have conference tie-ins. So essentially, if Notre Dame is in the top 12, that that's the magic number. If Notre Dame's in the top 12, they are almost assuredly guaranteed an at-large bid to at least one of those games. Um, so where's that leave us for this year, right? That That's really where we're at. Um, almost certainly it's looking like it'll be the Fiesta Bowl against the highest-ranked Big Ten team not in the college football playoff and not in the Rose Bowl. So effectively, the third highest rated Big Ten team or in the Peach Bowl against the ACC conference champ, given uh, the Orange Bowl this year is not um, and not up for grabs for the ACC because it's one of the semifinals. So that would be Pittsburgh or Wake Forest. Um, who would that be in the Fiesta Bowl? So again, if Michigan gets into the college football playoff, it would go to the next highest-ranked team, which would likely be Ohio State. And then the Fiesta Bowl would be left to Iowa or Michigan State. Most think it'll be Michigan State um, in the Fiesta Bowl, potentially against Notre Dame. Or again, we'd wind up in the Peach Bowl against Pittsburgh or Wake Forest. For all other ACC Bowl games, because we've had a good year, this is actually a little less relevant for us. Um, if Endy is within one win, so if Pitt has 10 wins, Notre Dame has 9 wins, then Endy is eligible for that bowl game. And then after that, it's really up to the Bulls themselves. Typically, the Bulls will submit their top preferences to conferences with tie-ins, and schools will submit their top preferences. Um, and then the conference tries to pair them up, so it's a bit of a, a bit of a matching situation. One one question that uh, that, we, that you hear a lot about uh, Notre Dame bowl placement is is why have we gotten quote unquote uh, bad bowl placement? So for a quick refresher on some recent bowls that we've played in outside of the college football playoff, um, we've been in the Camping World Bowl, the Citrus Bowl, the Music City Bowl, Pinstripe Bowl. Um, so not decent bowl games, but not the sexiest ones by any any means. Um, for starters, in years when uh, Notre Dame doesn't make the college football playoff. We don't have a path to New Year's Six bowl games by conference affiliation, so that makes it a little bit that makes it a little bit more complicated. It makes it like a little less likely that um that we can get into those just because there are fewer paths into those games for us. So yeah, we've, and, and just as an example there too. So in years when Clemson won the ACC and got into the college football playoff, 
Then the runner-up in the ACC got to go to the Orange Bowl. And a lot of times that was like an unranked UVA team or an unranked or, you know, top 25 but not top 20 Virginia Tech team, right? It was like, okay, ACC yeah. team. We never have that chance when we're not in a conference. For us, we need that at-large bid. So that makes it really hard for us to break into a New Year's Six Bowl in a year when we're not winning 10 or 11 games. Definitely. I think the uh, the year that we played Ohio, Iowa State, uh, was that a Iowa years? State in the Camping World Bowl, we were I, like number, I think we had 10 wins, but we were like number 15 in the country. We might have even been higher than that. I'm trying to remember. But it was definitely a situation where, you know, if we were in a conference and the, the cards could have definitely worked in a way to where we would have uh, made one of those big games. But because we're an independent. We were we 14th. We were 14th going into that game. Okay, so we were outside the top 12, so that's fair. But it is one, like, if we were in the ACC, Clemson goes to the playoff, then we're probably in a, in a BCS. Well, we would probably be in a BCS Bowl game. So, But anyways, that's just one of the minor taxes of, of independence, and I don't think anyone would argue that uh, this in and of itself would be enough to, to revoke our status. Um, but anyway, so that, that's why you will see some really bad ACC teams go to the Orange Bowl, a b- bad Big Ten team go to the, uh, go to the Rose Bowl. And, um, as we said, that's not an option for us. Um, and then on the other side, uh, top 25 teams play in, uh, quote unquote crappy bowl games all the time. So I think it might be a bit of a, a misleading statement to just say that we always play in these, these crappy bowl games. Um, and uh, if you look at the ones that we've played on, played in they're not they're not sexy but they're they're like generally on par with what you'll find with a lot of other top 25 teams um we get more than our fair share um but it's just a part of of college football and generally unless you're in those college football playoff games uh you're just gonna get not gonna get nearly as much attention um the games are not nearly as prestigious the new year six bowl games are still prestigious but they're actually not nearly as big a deal as they were before the college football era college football playoff era unfortunately yeah, and I think this is a gripe Notre Dame fans have. Again, the, everyone was upset we had to play lowly Iowa State in the Camping World Bowl. Just to be clear, last year Miami was a top 20 program. They were top 20 in the rankings, and they played in the Cheez-It Bowl. Texas was a top 20 team, and they played in the Alamo Bowl. Uh, Indiana was a top 15 team from, from the Big Ten. So again, Indiana not a blue-chip program, but you know, top 15 Big Ten team. They played in the Outback Bowl. So some of these games, I think, have also lost their luster because they've changed the sponsorship and branding so many times that it kind of loses some of the history. But to me, the, the biggest thing is it's just the nature of the conference affiliations with these bowl games where there's just certain years, even if you're top 25 team, you're not going to get into one of the top bowl games. And then the biggest, most important part of this is you'd still rather be in the bowl game. There's a big contingency of Notre Dame fans that would just rather not play in a bad bowl because they think it looks bad. It's just not true. Most importantly, it gives you four more weeks of practice. And if you don't play in a bowl game, you lose practice time, which is a huge, huge area for player development, getting more players playing time for young players. A few years ago, that Camping World Bowl, that was the job interview for Tommy Reese. He was the interim offensive coordinator for that, and it was basically his four-week job interview. So even for young coaching staffs, it's it's really important. And then the other part of it is it's better for recruiting. It's more time on television. It's more time in the press. It's, it's just more time being visible. Um, and, and, and I think that's really important. So let's switch gears to where we are right now because we are certainly not playing in the Cheez-It Bowl or the Camping World Bowl this year. It's going to be a New Year's Six Bowl or, or the college football playoff. So let's talk about getting into the college football playoff. We're number six in the rankings. That means we've got to move up two spots. Georgia is um, almost certainly in to the college football playoff, even if they lose to Alabama. So step number one, uh, we need Georgia to beat Alabama so that of those two teams, only one gets in, Georgia, and Bama goes out. Um, 
Now, to be clear, if Bama plays Georgia close and they are a two-loss Alabama versus a one-loss Notre Dame, it would be unprecedented to put in a two-loss team um, into the college football playoff. That's never happened before. But it's also unprecedented for Notre Dame to get in as a one-loss team with zero top 25 wins. So regardless, there's going to be something unprecedented here for the committee. Um, I would not guarantee Notre Dame gets in over Bama. So one, we're hoping Georgia beats Bama, and we need to beat them badly. Um, we, we need to beat them by multiple scores. Georgia is a six-and-a-half-point favorite in this game. Um, ESPN projects they'll win 67% of the time. But certainly for, for Notre Dame to go up from number six to number four, step one is almost certainly Georgia needs to beat Alabama. Um, yeah, and then one other uh, interesting tidbit here. I think Bama, I, I saw on Twitter, um, there's a stat. I think Bama has only been an underdog like five, five or I think maybe five times since Saban's tenure. And if you look at the list of games, they're pretty much, they're pretty much all the ver- very early part of his tenure before he had like really built up this machine. Um, the last time that they were an underdog, I think it was five or six years ago and it was against Georgia in the, in the SEC championship. So, and, uh, I think in that one, I, if I remember correctly, I think Bama actually blew them out pretty badly. So, uh, so we'll see. I, it, Georgia looks pretty uh, unstoppable this year. Um, however, I, it is a tricky proposition to, to bet against Saban. Um, and then the next, the next thing that needs to, to happen here is, uh, is Cincinnati. Uh, so Cincinnati is a ten and a half point favorite against Houston. ESPN actually predicts that Cincy will win this eighty three percent of the time. Um, so I, one one thing that people were were saying um, with our head coaching job opening up was, oh, maybe maybe Fickle will be a little bit distracted with the Notre Dame job kind of looming out there. He kind of shut that down, and now that we have Freeman, I don't really think there's going to be any any anything uh, like that going on here. I think he's going to be focused on them. Um, but this would be a key piece to fall if it does happen. Several weeks ago, um, those looked like the uh, yeah. I mean, so I would say several weeks ago. Um, like Cincy and Bama, I mean they've they've always, they've just remained the teams that we need to to, to drop a game. Um, Bama almost lo- almost dropped a game last week. Um, certainly, uh, Cincy, uh, Houston's one of the best teams that they'll play all year. So if there's a team that they would lose to, um, this would this would be it. But um, again, and then there's also a question if they drop a game, like is Notre Dame definitely going to jump Cincinnati? I think they probably will. Cincinnati's strength of schedule is really bad. Notre Dame's is not particularly great this year, but Cincinnati's is at a, at a G5 level. And then if you have one loss, um, I think you can throw out the head-to-head because I don't think in this scenario it's really it's really a, a tiebreaker anymore. I think the committee would probably tend to view Notre Dame as, as a better team. And then the the last two options is just chaos in the Big 12 and, and Big 10. And, and as we've talked about this for a few weeks, we thought that was probably the least likely outcome. And and it's actually looking more likely than say Cincinnati losing. So um, in a scenario where Alabama wins or Alabama loses and, and Cincy wins, then, then you still need one more team to lose. The most likely options are the only two options is one Michigan. They're a 10 and a half point favorite against Iowa. ESPN predicts Michigan wins that game 77% of the time. And then Oklahoma state, they're a five point favorite against Baylor. Um, Baylor possibly playing with a backup quarterback that that's still a little bit unclear. ESPN predicts Oklahoma State will win this 64% of the time. So Notre Dame needs help. Two of the following four teams need to lose. Bama, Cincy, Oklahoma State, and Michigan. Otherwise, Notre Dame's on the outside looking in. And even in those scenarios, it's not clear that a two-loss Bama, a one-loss Cincy, or even a two-loss Baylor, or maybe a two-loss Iowa, wouldn't stay ahead of a one-loss Notre Dame squad 
And again, it just goes back to our resume of, of zero top 25 wins that the, the schedule just didn't hold together for us this year, the, the way it kind of consistently has in, in prior years. So something unprecedented is going to happen, either a one loss team with no top 25 wins or a two loss team. Um, one of those is, is looking like it, it, it might happen here. Um, but, but Notre Dame definitely needs a little bit more chaos. So moving into what our chances are mathematically. Um, so 538, that's a, uh, a source that we reference quite a bit here. Um, they decreased our odds from 32% to just 13%. Um, so if you're, if you're, if you are looking just to 538, you're not going to feel too optimistic about Notre Dame's chances. If Cincy lost and Alabama lost, uh, 538 still says Alabama is likely in over Notre Dame, actually. Um, so why is that? We touched on this a little bit already, but, uh, the only top 25 win that we had again, we had was against Wisconsin, and then Wisconsin dropped out of the, uh, out of the rankings this week. So right now we don't have any top 25 wins. Purdue didn't end up climbing back in, um, and no team has ever made the college football playoff without at least two top 25 wins. So unfortunately, our strength of schedule, some of our strength of schedule metrics actually look okay, but that's because we've played a lot of solid, Solid, but not great competition, and we haven't played any FCS teams. And what it seems like the committee tends to weight a little bit more heavily than that, while that is important, is marquee high-quality wins. And unfortunately, we just don't have any of those that year. Um, now, we, we also need to mention that there are some other sources out there that give us more favorable odds. We said 538 gives us 13%. ESPN's College Football Predictor actually says closer to 50%. So the experts disagree on this to some extent. ESPN thinks we're still in the hunt. Um, so... Again, it's it, you're finding anywhere between 13% to 50, 50%. Personally, I'm probably closer to like 30%, uh, but no one really knows for sure. This committee, it's hard to get a full read on exactly how they're going to react to everything. Um, overall, though, I, we do have a chance. How, how, how big of a chance do we do? How, how good is that chance? That's up for debate. So to wrap up this segment, it, it feels like we're a broken record talking about the college football playoff. Here the last four or five weeks, Notre Dame still needs help. We're still kind of in the same place we were. But the nice part now is Notre Dame's done their job. This football team has gotten to 11-1. and one. These players have really went out and, and executed a, a great November after a shaky September. And that's been really fun to watch. And it's great to be sitting here as an independent football team on conference championship weekend, knowing our two options are get into the college football playoff as a dark horse or go to a New Year's Six Bowl where almost certainly we'd be favored if we played Michigan State, Wake Forest, or Pittsburgh. That is not something Notre Dame's been able to say um, really in the last 20 years that, that we've been favored in, in a big-time bowl game. So that's exciting. A um, lot of football to watch closely this weekend with our newly minted head coach, Marcus Freeman, on on board, and hopefully the, the drama behind us. So I think, um, hopefully I get this right, go Irish, go Dogs. Go Cougars, go Bears, and go Hawkeyes. Gyrish. Gyrish and everything that Brett said. One other note I'll make, we are not going to be using any more Brian Kelly audio clips in our podcast for obvious reasons. Exactly. New yeah. new, new transitions are, are in route. Definitely. And on that final note, Gyrish, go Freeman. Gyrish. <laughs>